This episode is sponsored by More Than a Number, the brand new podcast from ICAUW. Search for More Than a Number in your podcast app to hear Louise Cooper and thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Hello and welcome to this week's Spectator podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. As the debate about violent language in Westminster rumbles on, we take a look at what's happened to civilised debate and whether it's become too dangerous to discuss ideas with people you disagree with. Plus, could Boris Johnson request an extension and still win a general election? And finally, we take a look at whether recycling is really going to save the planet. First up, how have we forgotten how to engage politically with our ideological opponents? Online witch hunts are now a regular occurrence, while some important issues are almost banned from discussion for fear of causing offence. What's more, with the proliferation of social media, it's now easier than ever to take something out of context and for it to pick up viral momentum. Douglas Murray and Sam Leith both write about it in this week's issue, and they join me now. Douglas, why exactly do you think debate seems to be dying right now? Well, it's a number number of things, but they are in part rooted in the information technology revolution, which we're now in the sort of right in the midst of and quite often when you're in the midst of something it's hard to identify that you are you know it's always said that technological innovations are overstated in the short term and understated in the long term and if we're in the long term then we're really bad at thinking about what this has done to our ability to discuss and talk and I I submit that there are several very major factors one is what I describe as the collapse of public and private language which has elsewhere been described as context collapse, where any in-group discussion can immediately become available to an out-group that does not understand the context that the in-group is speaking in. And as a result, we all learn to speak basically for the entire world, that is in sort of blandishments. And I suppose one other example that I give in the piece is, is the way in which the speaker, not the speech, has become absolutely of prime importance that that the contents of the words the contents of the argument are of secondary importance if not perhaps no importance compared to the identity of the speaker sam you talk about context as well in your piece this week you you talk about this thing the intentional fallacy can you explain what exactly that is and how you think it's sort of resonating at the moment the intentional fallacy it's you know it's started to pop back into my head it's an concept that comes from literary criticism from the middle of the last century, the sort of new critics like sort of I.A. Richards and you know, people like that, who said, when talking about literary criticism, they said, you know, you look at a sonnet, and if you treat a piece of literary, literary work as, you know, simply evidence for what the author really meant, rather than a formal object in itself, you're missing the point. Hmm. And they said, you have to just look at the words on the page, you don't go, my mistress eyes are nothing like the sun, is a way of figuring out, oh, Shakespeare was really racist, or Shakespeare was really a misogynist, or Shakespeare really whatever it is. And so it's a very useful concept in academic criticism, um, or one sort of it. But what I've noticed is that in the interpretation of public language now, people are acting like sort of new critics, in that they take utterances and radically decontextualise them and flatten out the difference often willfully, I think, and in bad faith, and that's the central point that I'm trying to get at, of they flat out the difference between figurative and literal language. So, you know, our figurative language is everywhere, is everywhere in politics, and very often, I mean, the instance I'm I'm zeroing in on is, is the one that we've had recently about 
incitement to violence and and the admittedly very very anxious making level of sort of implicit violence surrounding and channeled through political debate but people are kind of getting to the stage where if you say you know they stabbed him in the back the fact that this is sort of what what you know critics call a dead metaphor is ignored hmm. stabbed in the back has a figurative meaning it doesn't anymore in most good faith uses of the term actually intend to incite or even evoke subliminally actual violence, actual yes. stabbing. You know, a dead cat that's slammed on the table in Newton Crosby saying, the dead cat isn't actually a dead cat. It's not violence towards animals that you're even peripherally attempting to connote. But because those metaphors contain words or originate in instances or ideas about violence, people are using that now. They're saying, ah, we can zero in on this as an instance of, you know, a dangerous and verboten usage. And so it becomes a way you can use kind of gotcha yes. in political life. Yes. And I think that's that's kind of, it dumbs stuff down. And essentially it's dangerous. It cheapens our ability to engage with each other in good faith. Yes, I mean, it, it exactly. It's almost impossible to think of worse demonstrations of bad faith than we've seen since Parliament returned. And I, I say perhaps it's because Parliament has nothing to do that it would end up in this position of playing word games. But um, a Labour MP claiming that Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, when he uses the term, that's like a when did you stop beating your wife question, is in some ways, in some way, legitimising or minimising domestic violence, which was what one of the Labour opposition claimed about this, is to pretend that, that none of us know these terms or have ever heard these these phrases before, and and this this is this is what uh, this is what I, I suggest is is another cause of this collapse in the ability to discuss, which is that all of us who write and speak in any context learn or, or sort of trained ourselves to do it in such a way that no honest critic could honestly misinterpret our words, and the problem of the information age, among other things, is that people have got into the habit of trying to write and speak in such a way that no dishonest person cannot dishonestly misrepresent them. And and this, I submit, cannot be done. If if people are willing to claim that metaphors are real and that, for, and that you know, you actually intend to, uh, I don't know, kill people because you use the phrase like stab, uh, uh, stab in the back, then then it's almost impossible to have any political exchange of ideas. Yes, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think what the only kind of caution I'd add into the, the mix a bit is that, which is what I try to argue for in my article, is that we do need to use interpretation. We need to use it in good faith. But, you know, to say, you know, one mustn't take metaphors literally is at the same time not to write a blank check sure. for all the uses of language because... You know, it is true, even if, you know, however many times you cry wolf, sometimes a wolf comes along, that there are connotative uses of language that can and do incite, legitimate, mm. you know, contribute to an atmosphere in which violence becomes possible. And we know yes. through history that, you know, some of the worst instances of violence have, you know, intercommunal violence have been preceded by particular linguistic formulations well, where people are deemed... The Rwanda so, genocide and so on. Yeah, yeah the Rwanda genocide. I mean, if I say somebody's Jeremy Corbyn's chicken or even say that, that some boorish politician is a pig, that's 
an ordinary figurative use of language in which I'm comparing them to an animal. If I say that a Jewish politician is a cockroach or a, a bacillus or whatever, you know, mm. there are animal comparisons that actually are dehumanizing. I was always so, I was always told never ever compare any person or group of people to an animal in any situation. I've always found it a pretty useful rule. <laughs> yes, but uh, you know, now and again, I, I I don't think that you're just making violence against Jeremy Corbyn by calling him a chicken. I think you simply got a really tired PR team. <laughs> Sam, do you think it's understandable that? plenty of people are becoming quite nervous about talking. I mean, Douglas says in his piece that he has some sympathy for young people who are derided as being snowflakes because actually they're, they're just being quite sensitive to the to the new world that they're living in. Do you, I mean, do you think it's understandable, really? I think, I think, yes, because I think we've got an atmosphere which has become febrile. And I think a very good point that Douglas makes is this one about the idea of the impossibility of, A, getting things wrong, and rather than because we have this very identitarian situation now, which isn't completely new, the idea that the speaker is more important than the message. I mean, at the foundations of rhetoric, you know, Aristotle's ethos, the speaker's kind of how the speaker comes across is the foundation stone of persuasive mm. language. You know, so, so a speaker's character has always been important. But we are that rhetorical triad has shifted towards ethos now so that we treat things as tells we say a particular sort of language if someone makes a mistake if someone uses a piece of language that's ill-advised or if someone even suggests a policy that actually might have an, a negative consequence it's like treated as a tell into their true nature so mm. there's a sort of the elect and the damned the sheep and the goats our team and your team the in-group and the out-group has become so charged that there isn't room to go you know what this is a person who's working in good faith, but, you know, say, yeah. you know, they, they vote for austerity because they think that in the long run, the best way to get the public finances back in order is, you know, to, to rein in spending. Instead of going, they have a different economic theory than me. You go, they literally want the poor to die. Yes. yes. And, you know, you can think of instances exactly on the other side. I mean, I don't think this is a, this is a particularly a left-right argument. There's, I think it's yeah. an argument to do with the idea that the out-group is automatically evil and that you're just looking for evidence and everything, all of their utterances should be construed as evidence. And once you've got the evidence, tick, that's them gone. Yes, this, this, is, the, uh, this is the type of, of politicking that's particularly keen on, the, on identifying alleged dog whistles. Dog whistle identifying is one of the great hobbies of our time. And I, I never tire of pointing out to people that if you hear the whistle, it means you must be the dog. But this is this idea that there are things underneath the words which we must identify, which show the real intention. I just add one other thing to that, if I may, which is that I, I mean, I'm very keen that we try to work out mechanisms for getting out of the sort of situation we've seen in Parliament in, in recent days. Uh, one way, I, actually, I suggest this in, in my latest book, In the Madness of Crowds, is, is how about trying out, even just as a short-term experiment, interpreting the words of our political opponents in the same manner that we would interpret the words of somebody on our own side in any particular situation. I was amazed, I give the example in the book, but I was amazed to read a couple of years ago when there was a fracas at the New York Times about a hire of a young woman called Sarah Young, who had repeatedly used sort of anti-white racist tropes on Twitter. The New York Times kept her on, but 
Ezra Klein of Vox, who was one of her main defenders, says when she says things like, you know, sort of kill all white people, I'm inclined towards generosity and inclined to think she's not saying kill all white people, but something like it would be nice if the world sucked slightly less for people of colour. And what uh, one of the challenges I have on this is like, OK, I, I, I could get on board with that. But in that case, how about inclining to generosity in general and not just when it's somebody of your own tribe or political uh, outlook? And, and I do think that's worth trying out because there's sort of no way back unless we do. Yes, no, I think that's right. And that's that's, you know, the good faith needs to be extended in both in both directions. And I, I think the point you make also about the idea that you that everything is public, and that is a technological problem we've got. Yeah. You know, you can never assume you won't be overheard. Is a sort of version of the weird, unintended consequences of freedom of information requests. You know, yes. this idea that transparency is the best disinfectant. You know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. But absolute transparency will give us absolutely the honest processes we need. You know, having discussions in cabinet and in camera and in private are often, you know, requires you to say and try out ideas. That might not be great if, you know, because you say something and somebody goes, no, I've thought about that. And that's a really stupid thing. And that will really damage, you know, the Commonwealth. And therefore you go with the other idea. But if all of your discussions are conducted in public and in this sort of atmosphere, you know, you can't get things wrong in private. And so you won't have those discussions in the first place. You won't think the unthinkable or think outside the box or whatever, precisely because, you know, that you know you can be condemned for having a bad idea even if you haven't put it into into practice and i mean the, the foi thing was uh, you know people simply people simply stop taking notes and stop communicating hmm. you know through their government emails or whatever or stopped taking part in minuted discussions in a democratic way because they went you know this is going to be in the minutes so we'll instead we'll meet in a dark corridor and do the deals quite away from proper discussion there's very kind of bad negative unintended consequence of all that. I just wanted to ask you both to end on, I mean, you obviously both write and speak regularly in public. I mean, have you have you found yourself changing your language to, to adapt to this new era of internet outrage, Douglas? I have slightly. One, ex- one example of it I, um, I gave a little while ago, I think, somewhere, was at uh, somebody Sam would have known, uh, um, the late literary critic uh, uh, John Gross, at his um, memorial service, Barry Humphreys uh, read an E.E. E. Cummings poem of four lines of incredible oddity and uh, said that John had wanted this to be read and and Barry Humphreys read the poem and then at the end of it said I've no idea what that poem means but if anyone present does I'll give them a box of black magic chocolates and I remember it was very funny and a small group of us sort of found this you know an amusing thing in future you know a box of black magic chocolates no one had heard of black magic chocolates since we've been children anyhow and then I found myself sometime later writing a piece and wanting to say uh, you know if anyone knows the answer to this is box of black magic chocolates and I found myself not saying black magic chocolates because I thought somebody dishonest will say why did you choose black magic chocolates and I just, it's, I just realised this, and I thought, and I changed it to roses, which isn't the biggest thing in the world. It's just that I realised that I was, even in a tiny, minimal way like that, slightly trying to avoid a dishonest critic dishonestly making a claim about something I was saying. And yes, I, I mean, and I'm one of the less fearful people on this sort of thing, I think. But it's, and I think in, in in general, we're all doing little bits of that. Yeah, Sam. Well, I. 
I don't know. I think, to my surprise, I'd have been bolder than Douglas about the black magic chocolates. Um, <laughs> They're I, yours. <laughs> it's not so much that I, I spend a lot of time worrying about bad faith interpretations of my own work. I mean, I tend to work in less controversial areas than Douglas in any case. I mean, a lot of what I'm doing is writing about literature where, you know, actually careful interpretation is is sort of everything. And I'm, I'm not normally expecting to be dragged on Twitter for, you know, arg- arguing about, I don't know, use of metaphor in Ian McEwan. But I do think, I probably have noticed over the course of my career that 20 years ago, I made some jokes which would have been you know, capable of interpretation as misogynistic or homophobic or anti-feminist or, you know, sort of borderline racist, you know, that I probably now wouldn't. But I think that's probably a good thing on balance. Well, I think we can now do a trawl through early leaf. (laughs) probably can. Offence archaeology. I'm sure when I was a gossip columnist, I wrote some things that would have been embarrassing. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you both. This episode is sponsored by More Than a Number, the brand new podcast from the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. Next up, Boris Johnson has finally sent his Brexit proposals to the EU. But with less than positive noises coming out of Brussels, could this really be the basis for a new deal? If not, and Boris has to seek an extension, the received wisdom is that the Conservative Party will be destroyed at the polls. But as James Forsyth writes in this week's political column, there's a chance the government can survive the extension if they can persuade voters to blame Boris's opponents rather than Boris himself. So, will this work? Katie Ball speaks to James and Ben Page, chief executive of the polling company Ipsos Mori. James, while we wait to hear what exactly the EU makes of Boris Johnson's Brexit offer, the main chatter in Westminster and government is this feeling that we could be heading to an extension, an extension forced on the government, and that is seen as the most likely outcome at the end of October. Do you think voters will forgive a Brexit delay by Boris Johnson? Well, Boris Johnson used to say extension means extinction. The idea was that Tory party couldn't survive once again failing to meet the Brexit deadline, that voters would think either you don't want to do Brexit or you're too incompetent to do Brexit, and that would be the end of the Tory party. You'd be back to the situation you were in the European Parliament elections where the Tory party were getting kind of 10% of the vote and coming, I can't remember, correct me when I get this wrong, fifth or sixth, I can't remember which one it was. It was Certainly fourth. Uh, maybe you can, hang on. No, you might, you might, you may, you're probably right, James. There was um, about 9% of the vote fifth, from memory. Right, yeah. yeah. So, so, it was no, bad. Yeah, so very bad. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's I right. think we can agree that they yeah. would not win a majority yeah. on 9% of the vote. But now there is, I think, a growing optimism in number 10 that they could weather an extension now partly that's the natural kind of human condition to be you know optimistic when life gives you lemons make lemonade but i think they think this they will present boris johnson as a one man trying to get brexit done being blocked by parliament and the courts and the only way you can break this deadlock is to give boris johnson a majority but that means certain things about this extension boris johnson cannot be seen to ask for it himself so when they talk about finding a loophole in the Ben Act, it's not really about finding a loophole, but it's going to allow them to leave with no deal on October 31st. It is about finding something that is legally credible enough that cabinet ministers don't feel the need to resign. It's not Boris Johnson just simply saying, I'm going to break the law. Then I think their hope will be 
that they go to court, the court rules that they will do it. You know, they will do all sorts of histrionics. You know, Boris Johnson will offer to give evidence in court as to why he is right. They will try and make this court case into a, a big grand palaver. The judges will then say, no, you must send the letter. And if Boris Johnson gets really lucky, the judges will say, right, we're going to take on the legal personality of the Prime Minister and send the letter on his behalf. So even his fingerprints aren't even on the letter. And they hope that in that circumstance, Leave voters would think, oh, you are trying to get Brexit done. And they would blame other people for the extension. I think one of the causes for optimism for them is when you ask voters which parties are Brexit parties and which parties are anti-Brexit, the Tory score for being a Brexit party has soared since Boris Johnson became leader. And so people wouldn't see it as bad faith, as I think they did with Theresa May's extensions, but they would see it as he's been blocked. Ben, when it comes to polling and how voters will react, how would it affect, as as far as you can tell, the Conservative Party to go into a general election after the 31st of October and the UK still be in the EU, so an extension had been requested and granted? I don't think it's disastrous for the Conservative Party because they'd be saying, look, we've been blocked by the Parliament and by the courts. And this is, you know, this election is about giving me a mandate to finally get a Parliament that will do what you want. So, but and I've also been in some ways, and it just shows the Twitter bubble I inhabit, surprised that um, prorogation, all of the fuss about that and, you know, ignoring Parliament, etc. None of that has made any difference to the Conservative lead in the polls. And again, it's all in politics, it's always compared to what? And Boris Johnson has his strengths, he has his weaknesses. People, you know, they, they sort of feel they know him. They may not be crazy about him, but they're much less crazy about his main opponent, Mr Corbyn. And on that, Ben, I wondered, um, we're talking about the impact conferences can have, various policies, or perhaps the, the lack of impact, something like proroguing Parliament does. Have you had a sense in polling how Labour's conference, where some quite radical policies were passed, um, perhaps not announced by Jeremy Corbyn, if you look at abolishing private schools, but, you know, a four-day working week, how has that affected Labour's electoral appeal? The Labour is doubling down on left-wing policies, and there is a market for some of these, perhaps not for all of them. But the, the, the key issue for Labour, which isn't going away, is the issue of competence. You don't even have to be seen as particularly honest, which is probably helpful for Boris Johnson. Remember that Mr Kinnock was always seen as more honest than Mrs Thatcher all the way through the 1980s. Didn't make any difference to his chances of winning a general election because it's all about ultimately Mrs Thatcher was competent or seen as competent and Mr Kinnock wasn't. And the challenge for Labour is even, I mean, some of the policies now like privatising public schools are not popular, but certainly renationalising some industries or or making tax some wealthier taxpayers pay a lot more tax. Um, those are popular, but the problem for Labour is people just don't think that they would be competent in executing them. And just to give you an example of that, back in the 1990s, as many people said, believed that Tony Blair would put up taxes as believed Neil Kinnock would put up taxes in 1992. Blair won a huge majority. Kinnock lost. The reason... Because ultimately people believe that if Tony Blair did put up taxes as they suspected he might, whatever he said, they thought that he would be competent in how he did it. James, uh, you also raised a prospect in your column that Labour might decide not to allow an election even after an extension has been granted. Can you talk us through the thinking behind that? So number 10 would... The thing number 10 have been genuinely blindsided by is Labour not agreeing to an election. In all their strategic thinking, they never anticipated that. And I think what they now, they've now gone to the other extreme, if you see what I mean. They now think Labour have got real problems until Brexit is resolved because they need to win 
some Brexit-supporting constituencies to get a majority, yet most of their voting bases remain, and the Lib Dems are eating up big chunks of that. And so the theory goes, Labour, would, uh, Labour will try, and you, we heard this at the PLP meeting this week, Labour backbenchers saying this, well, why not do this until Brexit is resolved? Why not keep Parliament going until then? The reason I don't think that's going to happen is twofold. One, to do that, you would need a government. And then no one can agree on who this caretaker prime minister should be. And secondly, you would need a majority for something other than just delaying and delaying and delaying. And I don't see what that majority is. You certainly couldn't get a majority for a simple revocation of Article 50. And I don't think yet you could get a majority for a second referendum in this parliament. And so I think we do end up falling into a general election sooner rather than later. I mean, I think from, from, from Ben's point of view, I think one of the fascinating things about this government is how driven it is by focus groups and opinion work. I mean, this is makes the Blair government look unconcerned about public opinion. Uh, and one of the things that's interesting on the four-day week point is, you know, one of the things that is giving the Tories confidence is that the public have reacted with extreme scepticism in their focus groups to this, sorry, the Tory focus groups to this proposal. And I think they make, this has reassured them that we're not going to be in a 2017 situation where Labour comes out of a manifesto full of goodies and the public go, oh, I like the sound of that. The public, they think the public have become more cynical about what Labour are proposing and that Corbyn's ratings are, as Ben was saying, so low that he's now tarnishing every proposal that Labour come up with. Ben, when it comes to who out of Labour and the Conservatives will fare best in a general election. There are some factors outside of their control. So we keep hearing about the Liberal Democrats, how they could eat into the Labour vote, also the Brexit Party and the Tories. But specifically looking at the Liberal Democrats, I wondered if you could explain to us, because there seem to be two theories. So the Liberal Democrats can be popular to a degree, and that might help Labour, or they can be really popular, and that could help the Tories. So how do the Liberal Democrats have to fare to basically hurt the Tories? Well, I mean, they, they, have, to, they have to win back some of their traditional constituencies in the southwest. And the, the, the challenge for the Liberal Democrats is, is getting enough votes in the, in the right places because their problem all has traditionally been that they don't have enough concentration. Now, we are in uncharted territory, given that they're polling level pegging with the Labour Party at the moment. But I, I mean, I, and I think what I, what I would just go back on is something that James has just, this point that James has just made, the Conservatives are doing their research. And as somebody who does research for a living, I absolutely applaud them. They are testing out messages and making sure that their positions are understood. And the Labour Party is not doing that. The Conservatives will also be doing the polling in the marginals, which is what really is going to determine the results of this election. Remember that even in 1997, only about 30% 30 of constituencies changed hands. Now, it may be more this time, but the national polls showing a 10-point lead for the Conservatives may be concealing and and Labour and the Lib Dems level pegging. When it comes down to real constituencies, the places that actually change hands, the Conservatives could be doing better or worse. And it's it's that detailed evidence from the marginals that the Conservatives, as far as I'm aware, are gathering. And as far as I'm aware, Labour have not got their act together yet. That that's, that's what will help them understand what the Lib Dems need to do. So I'm not really answering your questions about exactly how the Lib Dems are going to eat. It, but in, in general, they're hurting Labour more than they're hurting the Conservatives. But it really does depend on a... You literally have to start going through it constituency by constituency. And the other thing in all of this that we haven't talked about yet, we're obsessed about Brexit and the, and the 31st of October. But, you know, when you, I live in a very Remain voting constituency in Vauxhall, with, and my MP is Kate Hoey, friend of Nigel Farage. Now, Kate 
um, having come out, you know, absolutely for Brexit, completely contrary to the views of her constituents, apparently, from the referendum, went on in the, a year later to trump home, very romp home very happily in the general election. The point there is that the people on the, you know, the, the, the mass vote comes out and tribally votes Labour. And the tribal vote still matters and for people, for people like Labour. So how the cookie crumbles in the marginals, you are going to have to wait and see or until somebody with more money than the spectator commissions a really detailed survey. Yeah. And finally, I just want to check, I mean, when you mentioned 10-point leads in the polls, but yeah. there seem to be two types of polls sure. that we are getting. So one which gives the Tories a considerable yeah. lead and the other which actually puts them neck and neck. So yeah. can you explain to listeners and to myself what's behind that? Most of it seems to be the difference in terms of how turnout is, is treated. And the biggest one of the biggest challenges for opinion pollsters, apart from getting representative samples, is making judgments about who is actually going to vote. Now, Ipsos Mori and, well, in fact, Ipsos Mori was most accurate at the European election but YouGov wasn't bad either and we are the people who are currently showing from memory but a larger conservative lead that you know that so recent history suggests that we we ought to be right because we haven't changed our methods since then and uh, the European election in particular is difficult to call because you're trying to make judgments about turnout one of the theories is that if you're using past vote weighting then you may be um, and you're having to make judgments about how people said they voted in 2017 you have challenges in achieving a representative sample particularly online because what people remember about how they voted is not always how they did actually vote the classic example example is the 1990s when every year after 1993 when you asked the electorate how they'd voted Labour had romped home in 1992 and John Major wasn't in government because of course he was by this point very unpopular after the, the crash of the autumn of 92 and therefore they didn't want to remember that they had actually voted Conservatives not people lying so at this point with with things all over the place and people changing their minds if you're relying on past vote waiting that may be part of it but no let's wait and see and the other thing I'd say about polling which again it's you know it is not pinpoint point accuracy, certainly not the types of polls that we're doing here. And therefore, there is a three or four percent margin of error on each of those figures that we talk about when we talk about a 10 point lead. So when I tell you there's a 10 point lead, that could actually be statistically a three point lead or or a larger one. And so you need to, you know, we should expect a spread of polls, actually. And you'll see that, hopefully, you'll see that at a general election because it means there isn't herding. It means, you know, you will get a distribution. Somebody will be right and be lucky, as we were in the, in the uh, May elections, but otherwise you'll get a spread. Yeah. So is your sense, Ben, that we won't, we won't be able to have any certainty about the result until we get the exit poll? Pretty well. The night. I mean, pretty much. I mean, I've you know, I've, I've got my scars from the last few years. It's a hugely volatile situation. You know, there's a marvelous, a marvelous chart if you just want to see why politics is complicated at the moment. Is to compare the average of the opinion polls during 2018, when you see blue and red lines just sort of cruising along at high altitude, close to each other, and then comp- and then look at the chart for 2019, and suddenly you've got spaghetti um, all over the place, which is you know, and these new party, you know, the, the resurgent Lib Dems, the Brexit party, etc., making it very, and it's very difficult. We don't have precedence. We know sort of roughly how likely people who always vote Labour are to vote, to turn out and vote. We have some sort of estimates of that. We know how, we know Conservative voters are a bit more likely, etc. We know all that. But I don't know how former Conservative voters who now say they're diehard Brexit party voters are going to behave. That was Katie Balls, James Forsyth, and Ben Page. 
Hello, I'm Olivia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk. And finally, the author Laurie Graham writes in this week's magazine that there's a new religion in town, recycling. But Laurie says we should forget the calls from climate-conscious youngsters about how important it is to separate your rubbish. Because as she says, things used to be better when she was younger, when cloth nappies were washed and reused and milkmen came to collect your glass bottles. So, have we forgotten the low-waste lifestyle we used to have? Laurie joins me now, together with Julian Kirby, a campaigner for Friends of the Earth. Laurie, why exactly have you become so tired of young, zealous children telling us to recycle? Well, Lara, I've got a couple of problems with it. One is that I think we've not really been given the full picture and maybe because we didn't ask for the full picture. So we all, you know, thought recycling was a terrifically good idea and, of course, it is if it works. But now we're starting to discover that what we called recycling was actually sort of redumping. And all we're doing is sending our stuff to some other part of the world. So that's one of my objections. The other is that I'm really getting tired of having a heavy scene laid on me by my grandchildren's generation. Because I'm of the post-war generation. And my grandchildren, who are exhorting me to recycle every damn thing, you know, their fragrant little bottoms have been cosseted in disposable nappies. And they reckon the average child, sort of what should we call it, pre-continent child, wears about three and a half thousand disposables in its lifetime. Well, I have seven grandchildren, so I figure that's around about 25,000, give or take, which, you know, just for my family is a small landfill. My children, on the other hand, wore cotton terry nappies, which I washed in the sink and dried in the fresh air. So, you know, when my grandchildren say, you've ruined our world and you know, what are you going to do about it? I turn to them and say, I think it's your parents you maybe need to talk to about this. <laughs> Julian, in Laurie's piece, she talks about something called a displacement activity and says that recycling is a bit like that, that we're kind of, it's an activity we do when we're not actually really sure what we're doing, but we do it to make ourselves feel better. I mean, do you think recycling is a bit like that, that we, we don't actually know where it's going, nor if it's doing any good? I thought it was a really interesting analogy. I think that there's there's certainly way too much uh, faith vested in recycling. And I'm sure Laurie would agree with this, that we, we, we used to talk about reduce, reuse, recycle. And the first two of those got lost along the way. It sounds from listening to Laurie talking there that she might rem- she might remember. I mean, I just remember, I, I'm mid-40s now, the um, penny returns, that whole system of yes. reusing your bottles. And that was a glorious good thing. Now, actually, Friends of the Earth's very first action ever was, was an attempt to stop Schweppes from dumping its penny returns. And it didn't, didn't work, unfortunately, and they went ahead with that. And we've shifted over the years from the reuse culture, reuse system, to, to recycling. And, you know, recycling is a good thing, but I always say it's a good thing, but it's the least good thing. And, and there are problems with it for some materials more than others. And, and plastic in particular 
It can only be recycled a few times. Often the value of it is is so low that it's very hard even to get it recycled in the first place. Uh, much of what is uh, called recycling is in fact so-called downcycling. So you know that bottle doesn't go back into a bottle; it goes into a bit of a, a bit of cycle path or road surface or fleece coat or some fleece jacket or something like that, and then ends up in landfill or ends up gradually rubbing away and you know releasing bits of plastic into the environment. So there's a lot wrong with recycling and it's kind of no no great mystery either why there's a lot wrong with it because we're just creating more and more and more stuff as we're gearing more and more and more towards this throwaway disposable culture and and the waste system generally is is creaking at the seams, not able to cope. I think, well, of course, Julian's dead right, which is going to make not a terribly exciting podcast. <laughs> Um, uh, and I absolutely do remember the penny back on the bottle and it was a source of income to me when I was a child. And I, yes, I think I think the answer, we need to completely refocus. We need to buy less plastic and we need to reuse stuff. And the recycling is, you know, when it works. And there are apparently certain things like scrunchable plastic, which are not recyclable, styrofoam inserts, which are not recyclable. They're the things that we need to focus on banishing from our lives. And I'm sure, you know, well, what did we use before? We used paper bags. And and if you bought, say, a telly, it didn't come in a box with styrofoam. I don't know. Did you carry it home carefully wrapped in a blanket in the back of the car? We certainly did something before there was styrofoam. So it's all possible, yes. Julian, do you think government needs to be legislating to ban some of these substances which can't be recycled? Oh, certainly sh some should be. Uh, we, we can, If you look at plastics, you can usefully, I think, divide them into a number of categories. Your essential ones, you know, we all want plastics to be used for prosthetics and, and blood bags and you know, um, fire service emergency, you know, ropes and you know, all the rest of it, stuff like that, where plastics really... Uh, an essential useful material and then the hard to replace ones which you might group with the first category where getting plastic out of clothes for example or car tires which are synthetic rubber a big source of plastic pollution you ever wondered where the tread went when they went bald and, and uh, that's that's plastic pollution into the environment if we were just to get rid of plastic from those then then clearly that would be a big problem so it's not going to work but there are others like polystyrene you're talking about there, or like the, the black plastic trays that a lot of food comes in that, that can't be recycled, the machines don't recognise them, that should be got rid of straight away. Essentially, we need to, we, we need to focus on, on using the materials that we have to use, and, and we need to focus on reducing how much stuff of materials, whether it's mostly plastic, but you know anything really, um, of, of, sort of whittling that down. But we need to do that in a way that isn't just replacing one material for another, this whole sort of massive shift towards so-called biodegradable plastics. You've seen those cups with I am not a plastic cup written on the side of them, and they look and they feel like a plastic cup, and they're just as disposable as a plastic cup, and in the environment they'll cause just as much harm. You know, we, we, we need to shift away from that kind of thing, rethink the business model, essentially, and, uh, and, and uh, well, as we're all furiously agreeing, shift to more reusables. Just talking, going back to reusables, Larry, I mean, do you think your grandchildren would be open to the idea of reusing rather than recycling? Uh, yeah, I mean, in so far, we're talking about young children here, and in, they, of course, as we all do when we're children, have an idealistic view of how the world should be. And it's one thing to wish something and quite another to make it happen and, you know, to push against push against the the inertia 
of of the public. And you know, if we're if we're not even being told the full story, like for instance, one of the things I've discovered this week is that, you know, your pizza box, which you might think, oh, it's a cardboard box, that's recyclable. Well, apparently, if it's smeared with mozzarella, it's not recyclable. So, you'd think we would be perfectly well educated about all these things by now, but I don't think we are. I really don't. It's very complicated, isn't it? And, and the, the expectation that we should all be better at, uh, educated, consumer education, they call it all of that. I, I, I don't have much patience for that because the amount that we are expected to know, the ethics of this, the ethics of that, you know, w- what the welfare of, of people working in a factory to make your clothes or where the, the minerals in your phone came from and all the rest of it. You know, these are all really important considerations, but it's too much for everybody to be aware of to then be expected to just choose the ethical one and not choose the things that cause the harm, that cause the damage, that are, that are wasteful. That, that those things just shouldn't be sold. We should have standards where if the product involved mutilating children's fingers or, or fueling a war in the Congo or such like, then you know we need to be more scrupulous about that kind of stuff just not getting into our shops. One, one thing, if, if you're looking to sort of spice this up a tiny bit with some disagreement, I just have to say I disagree with you on, on this, Laurie, the thing about the younger generations. I'm, I'm not yet frustrated with that. I suppose I haven't had enough years of being sort of haggled by them and, it, and it's all in the pipeline for me. But I, 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 do, I do think that we need the energy of, of young people challenging, you know, particularly uh, the older generations, perhaps more my generation, to be fair, to, to, to change habits, to, to, to sort it out. Now, I don't think I wouldn't blame them for being misguided about recycling. I, I think that recycling has has been pushed on us over the years, because actually it's easier to push the debate onto recycling than you know for companies and for governments, because because recycling just makes it up to the public, and it takes away the challenge of having to create the infrastructure. It takes away the challenge of having to design your products so that you know they're not so wasteful, rather than just taking the cheap and easy disposable option. Well, my gesture for the week as the as the matriarch is I'm buying them all bamboo toothbrushes. So I'm ahead of that curve, if nothing else. <laughs> Great. And just finally, can I ask you both your top tip for cutting down on waste? Julian, do you want to go first? Well, I don't know if this will be my top tip, but if I can just say one thing about nappies, that there are some councils partly supporting social enterprises that, that do reusable nappy collections. So we did that. Now, you know, that that was... That took a big pressure off us because we wanted to do the, the home washing just like you did, Laurie. And for whatever reasons, you, you can you can judge us for not having, you know, gone ahead and done it ourselves. We found this service and that made it much easier for us and for other people to do it. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's a nice idea to sort of try and encourage people to get back to that. 12% of what goes into landfill is is nappies. So it's certainly, uh, you know, a, a, a worth looking at. But my, my top tip, I, I guess just generally, think of whether you can get a reusable version of something instead of the throwaway version. So whether that's your water bo- bottle, your coffee cup, you know, your, your bag. But make sure you do reuse it. Don't get another tote bag and leave it in the cupboard under the stairs. Laurie? <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've, tote bags. <laughs> I, I've, well, I have fallen back in love with canvas shopping bags and paper bags so you know I mean this is no great news to anybody I'm sure out there but um, and I'm always on the lookout I live I don't live in the UK I live in Ireland and um, you know things are are improving over there but one of the things I would love to see more of is shops where you can go in and buy certain things loose and weigh them out yourself and put them in I was starting to get it but I'd love to see more of that. Thank you Laurie and Julian and that's it for this week. 
As ever, if you pick up this week's issue, you can read all of the pieces we've discussed, as well as more from Paul Dacre, who discusses our infamous Enemies of the People Daily Mail cover, Richard Dawkins, and Mary Killen, who writes about all of the people she's groped, which includes Boris Johnson. And don't forget, we've got a free £20 Amazon voucher for anyone who subscribes at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week. Thanks to our sponsor, More Than a Number, the new podcast from ICAEW. Here, presenter Louise Cooper in discussion with thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Are businesses ill-prepared to cope with climate change? Is workplace inequality inevitable? And do businesses have an age problem? Simply search for More Than a Number in your podcast app to download now.